We are going through a series called Feasting with Jesus, and we're looking at how Jesus came eating and drinking. And so today we're going to look at this famous passage, famous passage out of John 2, the Lord of the Feast. So I draw your attention there. Verse 1 begins like this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Let me pray, and then we'll consider it together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Pray that you would, by your spirit, come and teach us, open up our eyes, unclog our ears, soften our hearts, that we might see and behold the beauty of who you are and the truth of who you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, uh, I recently heard this story about a woman that um, lived most of her life with, with a view of God that she later went on to regret. She saw God as an angry, mean strict boss. And when she was a little bit older, she traced this understanding of God back to an incident from her childhood. Her and her sister, when they were younger, they used to take all the clothes and they would string them up on the clothesline in the backyard. And one particular day, there was no more room left on the clothesline and she had her father's white dress shirt that he wore to work and there was no room left on the line and so she just draped it over a wheelbarrow let it dry. Problem was is that the, the wheelbarrow was rusty. And so the, stirt, the, the shirt got stained and ruined. And so when the father comes home and he sees this ruined shirt, he explodes in anger and punishes her severely. And she, as she got older, she, she kind of realized my interaction with my earthly father is what shaped my understanding of my heavenly father. And so she grew up, lived most of her Christian life, thinking that God was this mean, strict, demanding, punishing God. And here's what she writes. Quote, she says, my entire Christian life has been oppressive. I didn't know how to live day by day without an overwhelming sense of failure to perform up to what I thought God demanded. With that came a sense of God being disappointed and even disgusted with me. Now, what's interesting about her story, as sad as it is, is that I think it demonstrates this principle that how you understand God impacts how you live. Pretty simple. How you understand, how you see God shapes and impacts the way that you live. And so she saw God as this mean, strict, demanding God. And so she lived a life filled with pressure and anxiety and fear and worry. 
And so the million-dollar question I want to put before you this morning is this. How do you understand God? How do you see him? Like, what would be the words that you use to describe him if you were going to try to describe him? Well, it's interesting that the, the story that I just read in verse 11, it describes this whole story as the, quote, first of his signs. Now, the word first there is the Greek word arche, which is which we get the word uh, archetype from. And what this is saying is not just that this story is the first chronologically of Jesus's miracles, though that's true, but it also means that this is like the archetype miracle. This is the quintessential event that sort of captures and summarizes who Jesus is and therefore who God is to the rest of the world. So you want to understand who God is? How are you going to understand God? Let's look at this story. You could, you could say in some ways this miracle is like a thesis statement to the paper. You know, you put the thesis statement at the beginning of the paper and then the rest of the paper is about that. Or for the millennials out there, this is like your, your Instagram bio. This is like, this is your short little <laughs> nugget that summarizes who you are and what you want the world to think of you as. So this is Jesus' Instagram bio. And what's really fascinating, um, a friend of mine showed me that this story, there's three switches that take place in the story. Jesus does three different things here that are counterintuitive, that blow up your expectation, and each switch reveals something about who he is and therefore what God is like. So I just want to look at each of these switches one at a time, okay? Let's look at switch one. Switch one. Here's the setup. Verse one and two tell you that Jesus and his disciples and his mom are at a wedding, now, you probably know this, but in the ancient Near East, in Jesus' day and age, weddings were like a, like a big deal. Like a wedding reception lasted six to seven days. Like a week-long blowout party. The whole village would have been invited. It would have been a huge, huge deal. Like their wedding receptions back then make our little two-hour receptions in the you know, fellowship hall look kind of cute and embarrassing because they were, these were big deals. In fact, there's actual archaeological uh, findings of people back in Jesus' day that sued each other if the party ended early. <laughs> like UT students think they're big partiers because they're in college. They would sue you if your party was lame. So this is the situation. They're at this wedding, and in verse 3, this is what happens. The, the wine runs out, which means that the party is dying quickly, and it's dying prematurely, and providing the wine would have been the groom's responsibility. So now it's not just like this is like a party foul, like, oops, this is a big deal. That means this young man and this young couple are starting their life together with possible complete exclusion from the village. This is, this is a huge shame potential here, not to mention possible litigation. So this is a big deal, and Jesus' mom, the concerned mother, comes up to Jesus, and she's like, do something! And so in verse 6 and 7, Jesus tells the servants, fill up these big stone jars with water, and they do it. And when they draw the water out of these jars, it's turned into wine. And this is sort of the first big switch that you see in the story. Jesus has them fill up these things with water, and he somehow miraculously turns it into wine. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, I want you to, I want you to look at the amount of wine that Jesus made again. In, in verse 6, it says that Jesus has servants fill up six 
stone jars full of water, and each jar holds 20 to 30 gallons of water. And it says, I love this detail in verse 7, they fill it up to the brim. So to be generous, that's 180 gallons of water. Let's stop and think about how much 180 gallons of water is for a second. I did some, um, I did some math, and I converted it into liters. If you convert it into liters, that's 681 liters of liquid. So imagine your friends getting together to watch The Bachelor, and you show up with 341 two-liter bottles of cheer wine. That's a lot of cheer wine. 341 bottles, or if you convert it into actual wine bottles, you know how many wine bottles that makes? 908. 908 wine bottles. Imagine your friends are getting together next week at their house to watch the game, and you show up pulling a U-Haul trailer packed with 900 bottles of wine, and you're like, where do you guys want me to put this? And, and they're like, we think you have a problem. That's a lot of liquid. What do, you, what do we make of this? This is over-the-top abundance. It doesn't matter how big the party is. This is like over-the-top. This is an insane amount of alcohol. Now, I realize that all this alcohol talk may make some of you uncomfortable, and I want to be sensitive to that. The last time I preached this passage was at RUF with a room full of college students, and I made some people upset. People sent me emails afterward because they thought I was promoting, let's all drink 900 bottles of wine together and get drunk together. And so I'm going on the record. I'm being recorded. I don't think you should get drunk. The Bible says, <laughs> do not get drunk on wine. That's a literal verse in the Bible. So you've got to deal with what the Bible says about drunkenness. And yet, on the other hand, you also have to deal with this passage. Jesus just made 900 bottles of wine, and it's not grape juice, as some Christians have said in the past. It's actual alcohol, and he just made a ton of it. <laughs> so what do we do with this? What do we make of this? Here's why I think this is important, and I think it's, it's easy to get bogged down in like the alcohol thing and to miss the big point. What's the big point? The big point is that all throughout the Bible, wine is a symbol for blessing and celebration and salvation and festivity. So think about this. Step back and look at the story. Here's this lame party that's dying, and Jesus' quintessential archetype miracle, his debut as the Messiah, is to save a dying party. And to make it better. That's pretty fascinating. That Jesus would show up and he says, okay, now that I'm here, we have a real reason to celebrate. Now that I'm here, I, I am the life of the party. It's me. I am the source of joy. I have come to not just redeem and fix this little lame party. I am, my agenda is to one day make the entire universe filled to the brim with festivity and salvation and joy and blessing because of me, because that's what I'm like. Now, most people don't believe this. Most Christians don't actually believe this. Certainly, most college students don't believe this. I've worked with college students for years and years now, and my experience with college students is they get to, they show up to campus and they say, well, you know, this is the, these are the four best years of my life, so I really want to live it up and do the college thing. 
And, for, and Jesus is unfortunately a little bit of a buzzkill. So I need to sh- kind of shelve him and do the fun college thing. And then maybe after four years when I graduate or I settle down, I get a job, I have kids, then I'll return to Jesus and I'll come back to the church. And what's the assumption? The assumption is Jesus is in the way of my joy. Jesus is an obstacle to real joy. And maybe some of you have felt the same thing. Like, like uh, I don't know if you've ever been in, in this situation. I certainly have, where, where you have a decision to make. You've got two options on the table. You've got option one, which is going to be easier. It's probably going to be more fun, and you actually kind of want to do option one a little bit more. But then you have option two, and it's going to be harder. It's going to be more challenging. And don't you think deep down God wants you to do option two? Because you think deep down he wants you to be miserable. But this passage is like shouting at us, you have no idea who he is. Jesus is not the obstacle to your joy. He is the source of it. He, he is the only access that you would, he's the only shot you have at real lasting joy. He shows up and he fixes lame parties and he blows them up with over the top like insane amounts of festivity and joy. That's what he does. In fact, if you look at that first little quote on your handout by John Ortberg, he says this, joy is at the heart of God's plan for human beings. Joy is at the heart of God's plan for human beings. Do you know that human history, that the trajectory of human history ends with an eternity-long wedding feast? This is Revelation 19. This is how human history ends for God's people. is a nonstop party for eternity. Joy is at the heart of God's plan for human beings. Here's the question. Do you believe that? And if you did, how do you think it would change things? That's switch number one. We've got two more switches. Let's look at switch two. What's the second switch? Well, verse nine, we get introduced to this character called the master of the feast. Love that name, the master of the feast. This is like the the wedding coordinator. This is like the MC of the whole event. So some of the servants take this wine that Jesus just made and they bring it to the master of the feast and he tastes it and his eyes become saucers His jaw hits the floor, and he's blown away. And look what he says in verse 10. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And here we see the second switch. Jesus is flipping everybody's expectations because, of course, the way that it worked then is when guests first show up at the reception, you you kind of put out the good stuff. Everybody's a little sharper, everybody's uh, attentive, their taste buds can taste it, and they're enjoying the good wine, and after a while, when their taste buds have dulled a little bit, and they don't really care as much about the quality of the wine, you pull back the good stuff, and you bust out the two-buck chuck, because at that point, it doesn't really matter. And the idea is, you know, you want to make a good impression, but you don't want to go bankrupt trying to throw a party, and what Jesus does is... You know, here they are a few days into this party, and it's like the whole thing gets turned upside down. Jesus busts out the good stuff towards the end, like the most exquisite, complex, top-shelf, high-end, fancy-pants wine that, like, you and I can't afford, I can't afford when we go to restaurants. Like, this is, like, the good stuff. And what's crazy to me about this story, if you step back and think about it, is the groom 
had provided the good stuff, what he thought was the good stuff, on the front end. But when Jesus shows up, what Jesus provides is just so much better. It like blows his stuff out of the water. And I think with the second switch, we, we get this little principle. Here's this little principle. That Jesus is better than our best. What we bring to the table, what we offer, our best stuff, Jesus is like way, way, way better. Now, why in the world would that be good news to you? Because it kind of sounds like the Bible's looking at you and saying, oh, you think you're good? Jesus is better. You think you got stuff? He can do it better. Why, why would that be life-giving to you? Well, there's a fascinating place in Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says about himself, I put no confidence in the flesh. And what he's saying is, I have learned to not look at my resume and my credentials and my accomplishments as the thing that gives me an identity anymore. I have found something so much better than my stuff. What did he find? Well, he tells you what he has found is Jesus. He says, Jesus is way better than my talents, than my gifts, than my accomplishments, than my resume. Jesus is way better than anything that I could have to offer. In fact, compared to what I'm bringing to the table, Compared to Jesus, rather, my stuff is garbage. In fact, the word that Paul uses in that passage is the word dung. The Bible says your best compared to Jesus, it's like feces. It's not saying that your best is feces. I mean, you have good stuff. Like you being accomplished and successful, that's awesome. That's a good thing. You having well-behaved children. Awesome for you. A little jealous, but awesome for you. <laughs> you having, like, you know, landing some money, or you serving in the church, you serving in the ministry, like, all of that is good stuff. Paul is just saying, if I'm going to root my sense of self in those things, good grief, it's so flimsy, it's so fragile, it's so weak. Compared to what I have in Jesus, this is nonsense. Jesus is way, way, way better. Here's the question. What if you actually had a sense of self, not rooted in your gifts, not rooted in your personality, not rooted in your accomplishments, but actually rooted in who Jesus is and how he relates to you? Do you know how that would impact your life? I think it would liberate you. I mean, think about it like this. Let's just say that you fail. You really, really screw up. You can know in your heart of hearts, I am still loved and I am affirmed by Jesus. And he loves me because he loves me, not because of my performance. And you don't get devastated. And even when you succeed, when you just get out there and you crush it at life, it would be really tempting to get puffed up and to think that you're like Kanye and you're God's gift to humanity. But when you root your identity in Jesus, it prevents you from going all Kanye because you know deep in your heart I'm a sinner saved by grace. That's all I am. It liberates you. It disconnects you from the back and forth, up and down, flimsy foundation of your own gifts and your own accomplishments. And it gives you something way, way, way better. That's the second switch. First switch is Jesus turns water into wine and you see that he's the life of the party. Second switch is he busts out the good stuff last and you see that Jesus is way better than our best. And there's one more switch. Look a bit closer at verse 9 and 10. This is maybe my favorite part of this whole thing. It says in verse 9, so the master of the feast 
takes this amazing wine, tastes this amazing wine, and wh- what does he do? He calls over the groom. So verse 10, he's speaking to the groom. And look what he says again. He says to the groom, hey man, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Here's the third switch. The groom is getting all the credit for what Jesus did. Do you see that? Everyone now thinks that this groom is awesome and that he is throwing the best party this village has ever seen. This dude, I mean, this, this party looked like it was dying quick and the groom busts out truckloads of the fanciest wine that everybody, anybody has ever seen. And like everybody is going bananas. People would have been talking about this party for years afterward. They would have gone up to this groom 10 years down the road and said, dude, you totally had us. We thought your party was the woat and it became the goat and your party was totally lit and Four of y'all just understood that sentence. (laughs) Anywho, what he's saying is is that this party would have been the party that set the standard for what parties looked like in the future. So, not only did the groom not get embarrassed, not only did the groom not get sued, the groom becomes the hero. And I want you to think about it. What did the groom do? Nothing. He did absolutely nothing. In fact, that's actually not true. What he did do is he planned poorly. He was the cause of the problem to begin with. His contribution wasn't just neutral, it was negative. And he comes out of the scene, the hero. He gets all the credit for what Jesus did. Now, I think that gives you a little window into how God relates to people and how God relates uh, to sinners He brings the abundance of festive salvation into our life by switching, by switching places with us. You could essentially say, if you want to summarize salvation, you you could say the Christian understanding of salvation is that you don't get the blame that you deserve. You don't get what you deserve. And instead, you, you get credit for what Jesus did. Just like this groom. I feel like I tell this, use this illustration with students all the time, so students, forgive me if you've heard this, but I want you to imagine, let's do a thought experiment real quick. Let's just imagine that I play in the NBA, which is not hard to believe if you've ever seen me play. And um, I'm kidding, I'm horrible. Uh, But let's say I'm playing on LeBron's team, and we get out there one night, and I'm, the ball's bouncing off of my feet, I'm just getting owned in the paint, I'm, 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 I've got... 18 turnovers, and I'm just horrible. And LeBron gets out there, and he plays the night of his life. 45 points, triple-double, can't hold him, can't stop him, and so we win the game. And later that night, ESPN puts out, you know, puts out the article on their webpage, and you look at the front thing, and in big letters, the headline story is Matt Howell. Oh, my goodness, who is this basketball phenomenon? And list all these stats, 45 points, 20 rebounds, 18 assists, blah, 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 blah. And then there's this little article off to the side that says, LeBron James, where was he tonight? Zero points, zero assists, zero rebounds, 18 turnovers, five fouls. (laughs) And then you look at the picture, and if you look a little closer, you can see, oh, they've switched jerseys. So the whole game, he was wearing a jersey that said Howell in the back, 
And I was wearing a jersey that said James on the back. And so when the game was over, the performance was done, he got all the blame and he got all the criticism for my performance. And I got all the praise and I got all the accolades of his. That is the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is willing to switch places with you. He who did nothing wrong, he who was perfectly sinless, perfectly righteous, he is strung up on a cross. Why? Because he's getting the blame and the criticism of our performance. We're the cause of the problem with reality. And he's the one that gets the wrath of God for it, not us. And instead, when we trust in him by faith, we get all the praise and the accolades of what Jesus has done. We get the credit for his life so that when we show up, not only having done nothing positive, but we've done only negative, when we're in Jesus, God looks at you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you get the credit for what he did. Why would Jesus be willing to do this? It's because he loves you. He is willing to drink the cup of God's wrath so that you can drink the cup of God's blessing. He is willing to get kicked out of the party so that you could have access to it. He is willing to be tortured so that you could party with God for eternity. He is, he's better than your wildest dreams. I want to end with this. I want to go back to the, to the, to the woman at the beginning of our time together this morning with the, with the rusty ruined shirt and she gets a little bit older in her life and she's visiting with her pastor and she's telling her pastor I think I've had such a such an incorrect view of God because of this event from my childhood with the with the ruined shirt I've always just kind of assumed that my heavenly father would react to me like my earthly father did and the pastor is like okay that's good I'm so glad that you're seeing this connection what I want you to do now is I want you to rewind the tape I want you to go back to that scene from your childhood, and I want you to play it again, only this time I want you to put your heavenly father in the story instead of your earthly father, and I want you to tell me, what do you think your heavenly father would have done? So he comes home, he sees the ruined shirt, play, tell me what happens. And she says, well, I think he would have seen the shirt, and I think because he's good, because he loves me, he would have called me over, and he would have given me a hug, and he would have said, sweetie, it's okay, I forgive you. And the pastor looks at her and he's nodding and he says, yes, 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 that's good. But I think he would have done more. I think he would have taken that shirt off the wheelbarrow. I think he would have put it on. And then I think he would have worn it to work the next day with stains and rust and stuff all over it. And when people saw it and they were laughing at him and making fun of him for it, he would say, let me tell you about my girl and how special she is to me. What I love about that story is because the pastor is telling this girl, let's think of how God is good. Just use your imagination. How good is he? And she plays the tape, and you realize, oh, my goodness, God's even better than my wildest of dreams. He's better than how I could have imagined him myself. God is actually the type of God that when you're the cause of the problem, when you've ruined the shirt, when you've ruined your life, when you've wrecked your family, he shows up. Not only does he not scold you, he takes your mess off of you and he puts it on him. And then he gets the blame for it. And then guess what you get? A party. That's the insanity of grace. And that is how irrationally, unimaginably good God 
is. Here's the question. Do you believe it? Does it seem too good to be true? That this is what God's actually like? How do you think your life would change if you knew that God was this good and this is how he treats and relates to sinners? The possibilities are endless. Let me pray.